from Maine to Nebraska, Wisconsin to Georgia, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, Elon Musk has taken control of Twitter, and the platform's secrets have spilled out of the closet. Jessica Malugin from the Competitive Enterprise Institute is here to talk about the Twitter files. Congress is nearing agreement on the federal budget, and Republicans are battling over who will be the new Speaker of the House. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story. The haste to push COVID relief funds out of the door has resulted in substantial fraud. Congress is looking for a scapegoat, and banking apps may take the fall. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine reports. And Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring USA offers an idea for a truly inclusive greeting this holiday season on this week's American Radio Journal Commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. Since Elon Musk purchased the social media platform Twitter, a number of controversies have erupted, ranging from staff firings to free speech to Twitter's past efforts at influencing the presidential election. Jessica Malugin is director of the Center for Technology and Innovation at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, She joins us now. Jessica, welcome back to American Radio Journal. Jessica, of course, there's been all over the news what's occurring at Twitter. Elon Musk, of course, has purchased it. For those who maybe haven't been paying attention, what's the status of Twitter these days? So the status of Twitter, I think it's more than fair to say that Elon has taken the reins. Um, There's a big overhaul of the company underway significant percentage of the employees have been dismissed, and he's brought some new talent on and retained some, to be fair. And he's sort of re-examining the whole business because he's stated that his goals are to, on one hand, increase the scope of the conversation that's allowed to thrive on the platform, to make it a bigger tent, a more open conversation. But at the same time, he has the very real challenge of making platform profitable, which he stated. And the, and the platform has never been profitable before. So the conflict in that could come with securing advertising. So it's easy for us as users to say, okay, you know, the more opinions, the better. Hit me with it. Let's go. That sounds great. And it is great. The problem is, where are the boundaries of that? Because mine surely differ from yours and the next guy's. And all of those probably differ from corporate advertisers. So I might be very open and grateful for hard-hitting real video news of what the atrocities that are happening in the world, and I want to know. Um, but you know, the maker of Lexus cars might not want that ad popping up next to a video of someone being beheaded. So he has this dance to do where he wants to make it a more – It's not about free speech as a technical legal matter because this is a private platform, but he wants to make it a more open and a larger conversation, which I think a lot of the critics of Twitter would be very happy for. But he also has to have this thing make money and pay for itself. So um, there's a little tension there, and, and we're kind of watching him in real time work through that, which is actually really interesting. 
There has been a lot of criticism from the right here, Jessica, over suppression of speech and not allowing certain individuals on the platform, not allowing certain tweets to appear more often in the algorithm, all those sorts of things. Has Twitter really been, as it sort of built itself, a town hall, or up till now has it been more of, as they say, an echo chamber for the left? Depending on what side of the aisle, people might give you a very impassioned and very different answer to that question. But I will say that you know, Twitter technically in its terms of service and because of Section 230, the liability shield, the federal law that protects these companies from uh, liability claims, it, it is made very clear and takes full advantage of that Section 230 to say, we can do what we want. We can leave up what we want. We can take down what we want. We can promote what we want. We can hide what we want. And if you don't like it, then you take yourself and go home. This is how we're going to run this. And, and that's pretty much the case of most of the leading platforms do the same. Um, they have a space to curate, and they have a space to sell advertising and to curate. So they withhold, uh, they, they retain those decisions internally. But I think the public-facing Twitter, um, whether they're hauled up to Congress, they have been not quite as transparent as I think some people on the right would have liked them to have been. So what they have been saying is, you know, we're not politically driven. We don't remove things for that one point of view or the other. These are all terms of service things. So both things can be true. I don't know that people who are politically biased, and by that I mean everyone, knows how they are being politically biased at, at every moment, right? This is all our lens. We see it through. And I think that it is very easy to think of Twitter removing things that they feel are dangerous or misinformation where the next guy might see that as a really great counter-argument or skepticism or healthy debate. I don't think that most people know they were being (laughs) politically driven in their content moderation decisions at Twitter, but the new release of all these documents that Elon Musk has made public through a couple of independent journalists, and that's sort of what the news story is, right? Now uh, all that's filtering out and we're getting a look at the inside conversations in Twitter about these decisions. Most famously, I think, the decision to not let the Hunter Biden laptop story be shared amongst Twitter users um, with the direct message function. Now, that decision was reversed pretty quickly. And before the election, I think on October 23rd, uh, Jack Dorsey, then CEO of Twitter, was already before Congress explaining that decision. So I can't really speak to the merits of thinking that that decision interfered with the U.S. election. I think we were all talking about that story and talking about that story being repressed probably even more than we would have. But I do think that it's interesting to see how these decisions are made. And it's interesting to note that these are difficult decisions for for the reasons that we don't all agree on. Well, what's, what's pornography and what's art? What's violence and what's the news? and hard reporting, um, what's satire and what's bullying. I mean, these are questions subject to a lot of personal interpretation, and these platforms are not always going to get that right. I don't, it turned out, I don't think that the Hunter Biden laptop call was a good one. Facebook made a similar call, and, and I don't think that was a good call either. But these are difficult decisions to make in real time, and I like that, Elon Musk is trying to bring a more intentional tolerance and openness to it. I hope that that's what happens, but that comes with cost because he, even he has said, you still have to find that line where controversial conversation becomes 
too offensive or um, too upsetting, and then people don't want to be on your platform, and then advertisers don't want to advertise on your platform. So um, we can't forget that this isn't just a pet project for him. It's also a business he has to run and make profitable. We have been talking with Jessica Malugin, who is director of the Center for Technology and Innovation at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Jessica, tell us just a bit about the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Also, where can folks find you on the web? CEI works on free market solutions for economic issues. And you can find a work on a host of subjects, including my own tech work, at CEI.org. Jessica Malugin of the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Jessica, thank you for being with us. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. He's been keeping an eye on what's been developing at the Capitol. We have many things happening, ranging from the federal budget to a speaker's race. We're going to talk about all of them. Scott, good to have you here. Great to be back, Loman. Thanks for having me. Of course, the federal budget, Scott, was due to be done last October. As usual, it was not. There was a continuing resolution which put the budget off until this week. And now the House and Senate have to agree on a spending plan. Have they been able to come to an agreement? Well, they're getting close. And what they had this week were the chairman and vice chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee coming to agreement with the Democrats in the House. And this agreement largely is focused on the omnibus appropriations, but it will also include a number of big-ticket legislative items that continue to put us down this path of insolvency and, and irresponsible spending. In Washington, what we're seeing right now is, is these members that are yielding power, like Nancy Pelosi, and these members that are retiring, like Dick Shelby, and Patrick Leahy on the Appropriations Committee. And I think, honestly, they're, they're walking around Capitol Hill and, and they're humming winter wonderland because right now this is basically everything that they could have imagined. This is their perfect scenario. The timeline of the omnibus getting considered next week in Congress. So this week they're doing a one-week CR that extends federal funding to December 23rd, and that is basically creating all this political leverage for the uniparty big spenders in Washington that want to bankrupt America and curry favor with their congressional district rather than do what's best for our country. And so we're seeing just loads and loads of earmarks that are going to be tucked into this omnibus. They came to this agreement, but they didn't even tell any of the other members of Congress what the agreement is. They're not telling us how much money they're going to spend. They're not saying how they're spending the money. So basically, they're tucking that bill away, and they're going to unleash it at the last minute next week and basically say, put up or shut up. We don't think you guys have got the, the guts to shut down government two days before Christmas. Is this another case of you have to pass the bill in order to find out what's in the bill? We've heard that before. Well, those omnibus appropriation bills are more than 4,000 pages long. And the House does have what's known as a three-day rule where the legislation is supposed to be considered for three days prior to getting a vote. But the House can always waive its rules. And the Senate can always come to a time agreement to avoid a shutdown. And we know how skittish a lot of these senators get when it comes time to decide if they're going to go down to the floor and actually object to a time agreement that yields the opportunity for quick passage on legislation. And so 
I do think this is going to be one of those instances where very few people have read even sections of the bill, let alone all of it, because it's just not possible to read 4,000 pages, and then you add in what's known as report language, and that'll be a few more thousand pages of information that legislators need to pour over in order to really fully understand what this legislation is going to do to the American people and our federal budget. Concurrent with all of that, we have a situation, Scott, where a new Congress is going to take office here immediately after the start of the new year, and that means election of a new speaker. Republicans will be taking control of the U.S. House of Representatives. Kevin McCarthy is the Republican leader. However, there appears to be some question as to whether he'll be the new speaker. What's happening there? Well, he was nominated to be the speaker, meaning he was nominated by the conference of Republicans, but he didn't have the total votes necessary to be confirmed on the floor on January 3rd. So right now there's all this horse trading related to special favors, fundraising promises, kind of the crap that most Americans get totally disgusted by. And then there's a group of conservatives that are holding the line, and they want transformational reforms in Washington to restore power back toward the rank and file and away from the oligarchs at the top of the chain. Over the past several speakers, starting with Pelosi in, in 2007, there, there was a consolidation of power right at the top. And John Boehner didn't want to give that up, so he, he kept it. And then Paul Ryan kept that power at the top. And then Pelosi became the speaker again. And you can be sure she took a lot more power during COVID than any speakers ever had before. So Kevin McCarthy is very reluctant to give that power back to the members. And this sort of starts with returning the House back to the rules of the 114th Congress, which is only back to really the era of 2014 or so when we had the motion to vacate, which gave the rank and file the ability to hold the Speaker of the House accountable. I think that there's a real trust and accountability issue in Washington, and the rules of the 114th Congress, the motion to vacate, are the way that you can actually restore that trust. If the trust is broken, the Speaker is voted out. And what we saw last week was seven more House Republicans joining together, five incumbents and two of the freshmen, Scott Perry, Chip Roy, Dan Bishop, Andrew Clyde, Paul Gosar, Eli Crane, and Andy Ogles. And they sent Kevin McCarthy and other people that could be potential options for Speaker this, this uh, letter talking about how they need real transformational reforms. What they're also asking for is for the leadership not to be involved in primaries. We've seen the Congressional Leadership Fund and affiliated super PACs that are, are funded by CLF receiving money to basically attack conservatives and Republican primaries. So that's a real issue for a lot of these House conservatives. We will keep an eye on all of this intrigue over the next couple of weeks, and we will do so with Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, a few words, please, about the club. Club for Growth is a membership organization based out of Washington, D.C., and if anybody wants to become a member, sign up and do so at clubforgrowth.org. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. We'll talk with you next week. Thank you. All right. Thank you. As more and more COVID relief fraud becomes apparent, Congress is trying to determine whom to blame. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine is here to explain how some are looking to blame banking apps. 
App-based financial service firms like PayPal and Square have revolutionized how American consumers and businesses move their money around. It makes it easier for me to pay my friends when we go out to dinner together. makes it easier for lots of businesses to collect payments from their customers, their clients, to pay their suppliers. Uh, You can do it all at the tap of a smartphone button. But now that entire industry, the entire so-called fintech industry, is being blamed for COVID-19 relief fraud. Yes, Really, at least that's what Congress is trying to do. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. This week, we're taking a close look at this uh, new report that was published this week by the Congressional Committee that is digging through the aftermath of the very expensive and often quite wasteful COVID-19 relief programs that were enacted over the last few years. And in this one new report, that committee is starting to point some fingers at this whole industry, at what's called the the fintech industry. That's financial technology industry. Lawmakers on the, the subcommittee for coronavirus crisis say that widespread fraud in the Paycheck Protection Program, that's the PPP program that you may recall hearing a lot about over the past few years, it was supposed to pay to keep employees on the payroll of businesses that had to shut down either in whole or in part due to the pandemic. The report reads in part, quote, while the PPP delivered vital relief to millions of eligible small businesses, at least tens of billions of dollars in PPP funds were likely dispersed to ineligible or fraudulent applicants, often with the involvement of fintechs causing tremendous harm to taxpayers. Now, yes, that's course, something that taxpayers should be concerned about. But blaming these companies, blaming these apps, well, I think that's a little bit like blaming the bank robbery on whichever company happened to manufacture the robber's getaway car. I mean, when it comes to the PPP program, there was a lot of robbing the bank. Between a quarter and a third of the money in the program, and there was $835 billion in the program, so a quarter of that is a lot, well over $200 billion, is estimated to have been stolen. Between a quarter and a third, estimated to have been stolen by fraudsters. That's based on a couple of different analyses done by outside groups. Part of that is due to the lax oversight of the PPP loans on the part of the government, and a large part of it, I think, is just because this is what happens whenever the government starts throwing large amounts of money around in a crisis. There was always going to be quite a bit of fraud in this program. Now, was some of that fraud, was some of that robbery facilitated by some fintech firms? Yeah. Absolutely, that's true. As this congressional report details, in particular, there were a pair of fintech companies, Wompley and Blue Acorn, not two of the bigger players in this space. But Wompley and Blue Acorn were responsible for uh, what the committee says is a larger share of shady transactions related to PPP loans. The committee says that both of them failed to implement systems capable of consistently detecting and preventing fraudulent and otherwise ineligible PPP applications. Okay, but do you know who else failed to implement systems and missed clear signs of fraud in PPP applications? Yeah, it would be the Small Business Administration, the government agency that was responsible for handling the PPP program. But okay, let's let's accept the committee's premise here. Let's accept the premise that some of these fintech firms were unwilling or unable to vet users in a way that made PPP fraud even a bigger mess than it otherwise would have been with only government incompetence in the equation. Calling out those bad actors in an official government report, an official congressional report, 
might have some value to the rest of the industry or to consumers. Maybe there could be law enforcement actions to track down the fraudsters who use those services, and maybe the specific services themselves could be hauled into court if they failed to meet contractual obligations that came along with being trusted to disseminate some of those PPP loans. Those things would all be reasonable responses, but that is, of course, not the conclusion that the committee has reached here. The committee's report says that Congress and the Small Business Administration should consider carefully whether unregulated businesses such as fintechs, many of which are not subject to the same regulations as financial institutions, should be permitted to play a leading role in future federal lending programs. In other words, this committee is saying that an entire industry that has emerged, an entire multi-billion dollar industry that has emerged to compete with traditional financial institutions like banks ought to be banned from being involved in federal lending programs for the foreseeable future just because a few members, a few businesses, smaller ones within that industry engaged in some bad behavior. And bad behavior, keep in mind, that was rampant within the government, the same government that is now proposing to regulate those fintech firms more or less out of existence. Does this make any sense at all? To carry the the getaway car metaphor forward, this would be like banning all cars from driving on public roads just because Bonnie and Clyde drove a Ford when they robbed banks. The horse-drawn carriage and bicycle makers of the time probably would have loved that idea, of course, and a similar type of thing is happening here because this report is the sort of thing that will be cited to justify putting more roadblocks in front of the fintech industry and more protections in place for legacy banking systems, neither of which is warranted. That's what Nicholas Anthony, a policy analyst for the Cato Institute, told me this week. And that outcome, of course, wouldn't only be unfair to those businesses and to their investors. It would be unfortunate for the millions of people who already use these fintech services for non-fraudulent activities. Again, this report is pinpointing bad behavior on the part of a couple of small businesses and then trying to use that as justification for mass regulations of an entire industry. It just doesn't make much sense. And again, if we're going to talk about PPP fraud... Almost all of it should be blamed really on the federal government's own actions, which included removing safeguards designed to prevent fraud and overloading the Small Business Administration, which was responsible with handing out 20 times as much money in the span of just 33 days in early 2020 than it had ever handled in a full year in any year of its existence before that. The SBA's inspector general pointed out in a report published in May of this year that the agency didn't have any centralized entity to design, lead, or manage fraud risk until February of 2022. That's nearly two full years after the PPP loans began going out the door. So yeah, the fintech industry is not to blame for the mass fraud that we saw in the Paycheck Protection Program. If the government wants to find who's responsible for all those billions of dollars that were lost, really... All Congress needs to do is find a mirror. For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Bam. You can check out more of our coverage of all the silly ways that the government wastes your money at Reason.com. And catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. Are season's greetings and happy holidays really inclusive holiday greetings or an exercise in political correctness? Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring USA has a truly inclusive holiday greeting on this American Radio Journal Commentary. The irony of the politically correct virtue-signaling phrases Happy Holidays and Season's Greetings is that they're not really inclusive at all. They're actually exclusive. Exclusive not in the positive sense of that word, meaning rare and prized, but rather in the ugly, 
negative, sometimes anti-Semitic sense of the word, meaning no Jews or blacks allowed. It's ironic how easily the meaning of words can be distorted and corrupted into the very opposite of what a literal translation would convey. The most obvious form of this was exemplified in George Orwell's novel 1984. In his fictional totalitarian state, newspeak was a language, quote, designed to diminish the range of thought, close quote. It was characterized by the elimination or alteration of certain words, the substitution of one word for another, the interchangeability of parts of speech, and the creation of words for political purposes. The most obvious corruption of meaning was engraved on the wall of the building whose very name was Orwellian, the Ministry of Truth. There were three slogans engraved there. War is peace, freedom is slavery, and ignorance is strength. While today's obsession with the virtue of inclusiveness may not be quite as egregious as Orwell's Ministry of Truth, by being less obvious, it is actually more easily accepted and more readily absorbed into our culture without thinking. Are happy holidays and season's greetings our culture's newspeak? The ostensible reason to use either of those secular greetings at this time of year is to avoid saying Merry Christmas, because Merry Christmas is considered offensive to some people. It is not to avoid saying Happy Hanukkah or Happy Kwanzaa. Happy Holidays and Season's Greetings are all about diverting the December focus away from the birth of Jesus Christ. But the true message of Christmas is the least exclusive and most inclusive message ever delivered to man. I will highlight two of many Bible verses that convey total inclusivity of everyone on earth, past, present, and future. The first is from 1 Timothy. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And the second is this familiar verse from the Gospel according to St. John. For God loved the world so much that he gave his only Son so that anyone who believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. To whom do these verses apply? To everyone, every man, woman, or child ever born or ever to be born. It is literally impossible to be any more inclusive than that. But there's also nothing wrong with celebrating the Festival of Lights, known as Hanukkah, The first Hanukkah preceded the birth of Christ by about 164 years and symbolizes the triumph of light, or good, over darkness or evil. Who doesn't want to see good triumph over evil? It is of some cultural significance that it arose in the Jewish tradition, but its application to us today is universal. Let's celebrate it too. Say, Happy Hanukkah right after saying, Merry Christmas. And don't stop there. The 26th of December has been recognized by African Americans since 1966 as the day that symbolizes the principles of unity, self-determination, responsibility, economic equity, purpose, creativity, and faith. 
at their highest level, they are also universal aspirations. Each December holiday tradition has its own cultural roots, but each also calls to mind concepts that are, by their very nature, inclusive, not exclusive. So let's stop mouthing innocuous phrases that are bereft of meaning and that were invented primarily to exclude Christianity and its traditions, and instead embrace a message of inclusivity by saying, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and Happy Kwanzaa. Now that's an inclusive greeting, and far better than Happy Holidays or Seasons greetings. So I close by saying, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and Happy Kwanzaa to the great family of American Radio Journal listeners from Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including WDQNAM in Duquoin, Illinois, KARIAM in Blaine, Washington, along with KQSSFM in Miami, Arizona. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program, please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom. Freedom.